Welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Ros Taylor. On today's show, the Conservatives ban laughing gas and choose Michael Gove, lifelong abstainer from drugs of any kind, <laughs> to defend the policy. Plus, the French and Israelis are taking to the streets. What drives people to protest and when does a protest become a riot? And in the extra bit, a New York waitress has castigated Europeans for their poor tipping etiquette. Who's right on the money? Before we start, a quick reminder that Ian Dunt is under the spotlight this week for Podcasters Question Time. Oh. If you're a Patreon backer, <laughs> it's live on Zoom tonight, Thursday the 30th of March. Right, yes, I'd forgotten about that. That's actually quite a useful <laughs> reminder. Yes, yes it is. Yes, it is. If you're listening on Friday, you've missed out this time, but you can back us from just £3 a month to join us for the next one and watch back as we ask Ian who would win a fight between Descartes and John Stuart Mill. Dude, I do actually want some people to turn up to that thing. So if you, if you sell it that way, they, they definitely won't. I can't imagine anything more fun. But... No, I mean, admittedly, neither can I. Yeah. Take cards, surely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Take those filthy words out of your mouth. <laughs> Just search Patreon, oh God, what now, to sign up. Now let's meet the panel. Ian Dunt is a columnist at The Eye and author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't, out on the 13th of April. Hi, Ian. Hello. Can I say, on behalf of us all... I am experiencing vague satisfaction. <laughs> OK, yeah, well, yeah, OK, all right. You've even provided us with a soundbite for bad news. I just can't drum up any kind of demonstrative emotional reaction in myself, but hate... Let's face it, Ian, I've never seen an unboxing clip like it. <laughs> Thank you. I don't think that's necessarily meant sincerely or in a good way, but yeah, I'll take I think, that. Uh, I think, how did I put it? I think it's a cross between British phlegmatism and uh, Latin <laughs> outrage or something along that lines, I think I was saying on Twitter. I can't really, um, promotion is hard for me because I, I can't really, like if someone says, be happy now or be smiling, I I instantly am <laughs> incapable of doing that. And my and my instinctive response is, no, fuck you. So, I, so I'm very bad at birthdays, for instance. I'm, I'm incredibly awkward uh, at birthdays. And I think that pr promotion is basically like a protracted birthday. That way it is very, very fucking awkward for me and difficult. So I'm, I think I'm just going to try and lean into it now rather than deny it. The only message is buy the book, basically. Buy the fucking book. Yeah. yeah. There's some confusion today about where the government plans to house migrants. They've proposed two military bases, but now ships seem to be in play too. What is going on here? The lock -up brigade with migrants um, are lock -em up It's right until someone proposes actually having one of the areas in their constituency. And then like Edward Lee, Tory MP, they're like, well, you can't possibly lock them up here. You have to lock them up somewhere else. So it naturally follows that... I suppose the solution to this is to put them on boats. And <laughs> so it's in no one's constituency apart from Aquaman uh, and therefore get over the problem that way. Um, it won't work, of course, because it's insanely, tremendously expensive. There's no point trying to make the argument for why it would be cruel and inhumane or any of that, because obviously that has no purchase whatsoever. So they're going to talk about this stuff and they're not going to do it. The two things they are going to do is probably these RAF bases, subject, though, to sort of local pressures and, and local protests and the MPs kicking off about it. But I imagine they will do that. And they will pursue this policy, which essentially is really just a complete rejection of any idea of habeas corpus. It's really just like we are just going to keep on locking people up for an unlimited amount of time without any real ability to send them anywhere else, but an unwillingness to process their claims and allow them to stay here just into this black hole that refugees or asylum seekers will be living in. So it's pretty grim. And I have to say, I'm finding it hard to maintain 
any sunny, optimistic disposition while you get this daily dreadful regurgitation of this just crippling moral anxiety that they've introduced. Tom Peck is the sketch writer at The Independent. Hello. Hi, Tom. We now know for sure that Jeremy Corbyn won't be standing as a Labour candidate in Islington North. Keir Starmer ruled and the NEC have agreed. He's more or less said he'll stand as an independent. Mm. It'll be a tough job taking him on, won't it? But presumably some people are up for it. Um, I don't think it will be an especially job, tough job taking him on at all. And of course people will be up for it because all you've got to do is get through a slightly soap opera election of 2024 where you're up against a candidate who may take some votes of you, but not that many. And then you have got a job for life. I cannot possibly believe that there are enough people who who live in Islington North sufficiently enraptured by Jeremy Corbyn to split a seat where they're going to win by so far as to actually lose it. I do think there is it's much more interesting and relevant to consider like actually the consequences of the whole election on having deliberately made an enemy of Jeremy Corbyn, right? It's, it's much easier in politics if you keep your crazies on your flanks. And I don't necessarily mean Corbyn, but to keep your crazy loonies on the flanks, you sort of keep them on board and pretend that you're one of them. They're one of you. And if you start picking a fight with them, i.e. like Cameron sort of acts as they did with UKIP, then you can make a world of trouble for yourself. And like, for example, the Lib Dems did very, very well under Tony Blair. And they did well because they attacked Labour from the left, right? So they did it on ID cards, on the Iraq war. And then in 2015, their support died, not just because of the coalition, but also because all those people just flocked to Corbyn. Now, if you have made an enemy of those people prior to the election actually taking place, it may not prove to be very smart politics. But, but I accept Stam had a tough choice, right? He's just decided I'm completely zero tolerance to anti-Semitism, come what may. And I think that's probably the right choice. But there could be electoral downsides, for sure. I don't think so much that it would actually mean someone will not win, a Labour candidate won't win in Islington North. But it will be definitely be an interesting side plot to the election generally, yeah. Our guest this week is a writer for The New Statesman. His latest book is Conspiracy, A History of Bollocks Theories and How Not to Fall for Them. (laughs) Hello, John. title I didn't choose, by the way. (laughs) Hello, Hello, John Elledge. Very good to be here. You also take a keen interest in public transport, as do I, in fact. We found out recently that the Mayor of London... Stop laughing. (laughs) Can I I leave? (laughs) This is quite brief. You say that, but let's, <laughs> let's see how we do here. I've, I've got to limit myself and I will. You also take a keen interest in public transport. It's like one of the things just when an online date's about to fall apart. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't hear that so much from women, do you? One of, one of my editors at the New Statesman, Pravina actually wrote a piece complaining that straight men keep talking about the Elizabeth line. <laughs> To which, to which my first thought was, it's not just the straight ones. <laughs> I'm guilty as charged on that front. We found out recently that the Mayor of London is going to rebrand London Overground. And for non-London listeners, that's a rail network that's all orange on the rail map, which can be a bit confusing sometimes. Is it four million quid well spent? Yeah. Damn straight! It, no, it's <laughs> so like there, there, there are there are two ways of getting between this this fine office we're sat in right now and and where I live, and they both involve the overground, 
uh, but they're completely different routes. Uh, and that's very confusing on things like signage or, you know, mapping apps like City Mapper and so on. So it is, it is, you know, we, we give lines different branding for a reason. It won't, this is a one-off cost and it will make it easier, easier to navigate the network. Plus, I grew up in a house next to one of these lines, uh, which has no obvious name. Uh, and someone who works for the mayor's office did once tell me that my articles had been, I'm just bragging here, had been one of the, <laughs> the reasons why they're looking at this. So I'm wow. just saying the, uh, the Romford to Upminster line, uh, if, if you want to name that the Elledge line, then I think that would be that would be a worthy <laughs> tribute. But I'm just throwing that out there. I used Aren't to we... catch that all the time. Aren't we running out of colours? <laughs> yeah. There are, okay. This is, there is actually a problem that you can only see so many colours. Yeah, exactly. I think because I I sometimes get confused between Elizabeth Line and um, Piccadilly. Because they're very similar colours, aren't they? Yeah. So what yeah, are they going to do? The are we going to have like tartan line or or some other you know spotty line? Or I, don't I mean, know. like if you look at like the Paris metro map, they use different thicknesses. There are other tricks you can do, but probably given <laughs> given recent history of the map, they'll do they'll do something terrible and make it look really ugly. Please, can I leave? <laughs> okay. Well, let's talk about John Stuart Mill, shall we? Yeah, let's have a nice long chat about John Stuart Mill. If, if you suggest that we call it the John Stuart Mill line, I am 100% there for you, and I'll do every Patreon fucking Substack thing you need me to do. In a fight, right? As far as I'm aware... You were doing a fight between John Stuart Mill and the London Overground. I can't remember, but I think I'm right saying that he had like a nervous breakdown at the age of 18. Because yeah. he was going to have to, he was fr- frightened that he was going to have to denounce his father's views on utilitarianism, right? That's not why he had uh, the breakdown, but, but he was also basically afraid of right. That. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, whatever. It's, it's not, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, obviously, I like John Stuart Mill, but when I was 18 and things were like kicking off outside the Mason's arms, I'm not convinced I would have wanted somebody on my side who's having a nervous breakdown over like such matters as okay philosophy and therefore maybe Descartes might have him in a fight objectively I mean Descartes was in a war and would occasionally just grab live animals from actual dogs from the the friend's house that he was in and dissect them in front of the friend (laughs) and John Stuart Mill you're right for the whole of his life was completely unable even to do up his own tie because he was so physically left so physically incompetent by his childhood so on that basis <laughs> you're right they probably lose a fight but the thing is I prefer John Stuart Mill oh, <laughs> so right. I will yeah, now yeah. say that he would win a fight against anyone I just can't have fun so just before we move on can I just point out there are some constituencies that include large chunks of water like Brist- <laughs> Bristol, oh, Bristol North West includes the entire Bristol Channel it's a whole thing right guys time to move on I'm afraid <laughs> Speaking of antisocial behaviour outside the Mason Arms, the last time I had any nitrous oxide was when I was trying to give birth. But judging by the number of gleaming silver canisters rolling around the gutters, a lot of people are having a much better time than I did on it. (laughs) The same substance that whips cream and sedates dental patients can also give you a short high. The Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs concluded recently that it wasn't worth banning possession of it. But the Home Office disagrees and it will soon be a class C drug. Ian, I can't honestly remember much about my experience of nitrous oxide. <laughs> What's, what is the appeal? It's a very modest drug, very, very brief in effect. I mean, not even really a full minute, quite giggly, very, very mild euphoria. I mean, I, I have done it. I mean, you know, the sort of tail end of, of a drug career. You astonish and, me. Ian. Yes, no, I can, I can imagine that would be surprising. But I, I mean, certainly at that point, we thought it was quite useful sort of as an additive to other things rather than something that you would sort of get together to do on their own. But walking through Hampstead Heath 
on a, on a summer's afternoon, I, I would definitely confirm that there is an awful lot of it being done by people who are just doing it in and of itself. And if I noticed last summer that teenagers were sort of sit, almost like the balloons were cigarettes, you know, so they were just chatting away and doing little bits of balloon. Mm. And it became very, 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 very popular indeed. It's quite fun. It's basically like poppers, which probably haven't done, but it's like <laughs> poppers, but less grotty. I suppose there's less of a headache and you don't feel quite so much like you've just poisoned your own body. This is a bit like when you get that great rush with music, you know. Last movements of Verdi's Requiem, that kind of thing. Is it like that? Yes, it's just like Verdi's Requiem. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that sounds fun. Um, Suella Braverman says these laws will put an end to hordes of youths loitering in parks. Why is it illegal to loiter in parks? What else are you supposed to do in parks? Ah, oh, yes, exactly. Right. Well, if, if they weren't young people... They wouldn't be loitering, would they? They'd be socialising and laughing in parks, which is completely fine. But if people are young or if they're black or they're Asian, they loiter. Because lo- what loiter really means is a bunch of people chatting and laughing, but in a way that we find threatening all of a sudden. That's what she's getting at. And I think what's interesting is to hear her arguments and Sunak's arguments. They haven't really tried to make the case on health. It's quite hard to make the case on health. There are some dangers to it, by the way. If you do a lot of it for a long time, and I really do mean a lot. We're talking 200 of those little canisters a session you're doing that every day you can experience a sort of vitamin i think it's d deficiency which it's, which it's, b, it's b12 it's it kind b12, of it attack right. the the myelin sheath around your nerves which which i personally um you know have some sympathy with that even though as you say it's you have to take a lot of it because it's uh, it's what happens when you have ms basically right um, okay and it's, mm-hmm. and it's nasty mm-hmm. uh, it's not nice you can end up not walking but as you say it's very rare yeah it's it's rare i mean you know all drugs have a downside bar none um and this has a downside as well if you do way too much of it. That is certainly not where the, where the sort of data is on, on the vast majority of usage. It's pretty much harmless when you're just doing a little bit of it sometimes. So they haven't really tried to make the case on health. They've tried mm. to make it on sort of pollution and antisocial behaviour. Now, the advisory council was really, really clear on antisocial behaviour. It's just like, there is no link. There is no evidence of a link. There's no link with criminal gangs. There's no link with violence. There's no link with anything, any of that. But, you know, they know who their target demographic is with this policy. They know who they're trying to appeal to, which are people that are scared of groups of young people together, people who are annoyed by the canisters on the street. And that's the reason that they're doing it. Tom, Labour has Mm. rode in behind this ban. Why? Well, I'm not, generally speaking, I'm not really a great believer in the sort of dead cat analysis and this is what they're really doing and distraction politics and all that stuff because it doesn't really do it for me, that stuff. But I do think that, um, having said that, that, when you are a new prime minister and you are not really going to do anything before an election, there's no real, you've, you've, you've missed the first half of your opportunity, really. Anything you try and do is not really going to be done before the election. So we are kind of living in full on politics by stunts, politics by bear traps. I mean, the mm. childcare stuff, which seemed like a big announcement. Actually, if you look at it, most of the important rules don't change until after they've potentially lost an election. So it just makes life impossible for Labour. And I do think we're into sort of fully cynical politics and if they're doing, if they're bringing something in which is only to gain traction and doesn't really matter and doesn't really change anything for the reasons that have already been explained, if Labour decide, well, actually, I'm not going to just oppose what you want me to oppose, so that in a year and a half's time you can say that we, we you, you tried to do something against about antisocial behaviour, and Labour said no, Labour voted against. I think for the sake of a completely meaningless bit of legislation about something so absurd, they're just not going to go along with it. They're just not going to play the game. Uh, real politic, really. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. John, the irony here is that young people are doing fewer drugs than they used to. Yeah, both illegal. <laughs> both legal and illegal. 
Must there always be a moral panic about something young people are doing in every generation? I mean, I think there always there has been, hasn't there? Like, I, the, the 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 story this brought to mind for me was: um, Do you remember the the mosquitoes? from like 2008, those oh, kind yeah. of like sound devices that anyone over the age of 21 can't hear. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but their entire purpose is to disperse annoying crowds of kids who may or may not be doing anything wrong. Often they just need that They've got to be somewhere. You know, if they, they, these people, they're not going to wink out of existence just because the, the, the angry 65-year-old medium voter in Stoke-on-Trent uh, finds them annoying. These guys are going to be somewhere, and if they were all sat at home playing Xbox instead, the government would be having a moral panic about that. <laughs> it, it is. It is I, th- I think Tom's right. It's purely about the electoral politics of it, and the fact that we have a government that is run entirely in the interests of of angry older voters at this point. Mm. I mean, like Braverman, Starmer has linked drug taking explicitly to antisocial behaviour. He said the smell of cannabis was making life a misery for one family, and you know. Perhaps we shouldn't laugh because perhaps it is or perhaps there's a whole lot of other things in their lives that are making them a misery. (laughs) But why is this such a big issue at a time when the country faces such enormous problems? That's why, isn't it? It's that like the the, the scale of the problems we face are not things this government is actually going to be able to fix, partly for ideological reasons, uh, because they don't believe in the sort of things that we need to do, partly because they cause this mess. And partly just because there isn't there isn't the time. So, like, you know, they they can't sort out the economic mess they spent the last 13 years creating. All they can do is distract us from it and get people to, to pay attention to fripperies. So we're talking about stuff like this or sticking migrants on boats because they don't want to talk about inflation. Ian, you point out that the current cabinet is not entirely inexperienced when it comes to hard drugs. Beyond the hypocrisy, there is a class issue here, isn't there? Yeah, it's class and it's race. Uh, and the war on drugs has always been on both of those standards. Uh, Drugs work as a kind of um, totem to sort of bring together all the fears and anxieties that people have towards a particular group. So, you know, it would be like Chinese immigrants when it was about smoking opium, you know, the very beginning of the 20th century. And then you'd have the same with sort of black urban communities, you know, when we talk about crack, certainly, you know, in in the later part of the 20th century. Um, And you see the same sort of thing operate with each one. Again, then sometimes it's cultures. So the fear around speed, which was applied to the mods in the 50s and the 60s, is very, very similar. Poorer people are caught up in drug laws for all sorts of reasons that are typically practical as well as ideological. So, for instance, like when we had cannabis warnings, cannabis warnings were a really, really good idea because it was basically a way of decriminalizing cannabis use. But they counted as a completed crime for the police. So you solve a murder, completed crime. You hand someone a cannabis warning, completed crime. So there was a very strong incentive towards handing these things out. And one good way of doing that was to go to a council state. You go to a council state and you could just sweep up a bunch of kids, you know, smoking weed. And there's a lot of completed crimes. It looks very, very good for you. You're not actually putting any of these kids in prison. You're not even giving them a criminal record. But what they were doing was ensuring that their first contact with the police was an extremely aggressive um, oppositional one rather than a more healthy one, which might lead to a better sort of lifetime relationship. So over and over for practical reasons and for ideological ones, you find that relationship between class, between race and between culture when it comes to young people. Is there a public-private places thing going on as well? Because it seems to be yeah. tacitly okay to consume drugs in private in Britain when, you know, you have someone pretending to be a delivery driver coming around and dropping them off, but not in a public place. Yeah. And and that's just, you know, it's just wrong, isn't it, to, to <laughs> allow that. Either drugs are wrong or they're not. The hypocrisy is sort of extraordinary. And, and so I know we sort of did it jokingly at the beginning of this, but like I, I had quite a clear thing in my head from the start of 
of sort of talking publicly about drugs, of being completely honest about my own usage because of the, just the extent of the fucking hypocrisy around it. And you'll hear it sometimes from people who are anti-drugs, like journalists and politicians. Well, well, when, when you're away from the camera, when you're away from the public light, they'll be in a sort of wink-wink kind of way. It's like, oh, but you know, the, my days of cheeky lines are behind me or blah, blah, blah. And you're like, no, you know what? Fuck you. Like, you know, that, that this idea that you get to get away with it. And then Michael Gove gets to come out and say it and then have this very successful high-flying career while saying, no, but you know what? We're going to absolutely catastrophically fuck the life of a young person. What? In two months from now? Three months from now? Who's found with a canister? Who might be put in jail? It's unlikely, but they might be put in jail. Who certainly have their future career prospects ruined by it. You know, just to say that, just to be able to go, well, I'm all right, but I'm going to make sure that you're not okay. It's just sort of hypocrisy of such a high magnitude that it's very hard to maintain your emotional disposition in the face of it. I, I do think like Rishi Sunak is, is that unlike certain other recent prime ministers, he is a man I can well believe has not touched drugs. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if the hypocrisy goes right to the very top on this occasion. Although he was, I mean, the thing is, he was at Winchester College. And, you know, I, I, I went to the preparatory school for Winchester College. I didn't go there, but I, could, I can tell you that my friends that did go there, that place... I don't know whether that's illegal. I think I can get away with that. But like that, pla- that place was... You're was... about to say that you sold him drugs. <laughs> no, but, but, but that place had, had quite a lot of drugs going on in it, as do most public schools. So he must, even then he must have come across it. On, on, let's take, for instance, right, the, the smelling cannabis point, right? I remember reading Ed Balls and Yvette Cooper's piece in The Guardian when they went to uh, Glastonbury. And one part of it was them saying, oh, and you know, and that unmistakable whiff of cannabis that you get in this almost celebratory, oh, you know, what a place kind of way. And now it's like, oh, but no, now it's going to destroy your fucking communities like that even on that more modest scale that's part of the hypocrisy of the way that we talk about this issue well so there's just there's no room in in the way we talk about this for for the the fact that you know a lot of people who recreationally use drugs it doesn't mess up their lives that doesn't that doesn't mean that you know it obviously it, do, it does ruin some people's lives and that needs to be something we think about in policy making but there's kind of no way of acknowledging that actually there's loads of people in this country who get mashed up on weekends and then go back to work on monday morning mm-hmm. it's all perfectly fine mm-hmm. But that's the sort of hypocrisy that you have to try and rumble on with. And it's like so many political problems and policy issues is that, I mean, like, it's slightly slightly daft parallel potentially. But like, for, for example, in Ireland, for a while, that you, you, rumble on with this, you rumble on with this idea that actually the nationalist parties in the Republic of Ireland sort of pretend that they would like a United Ireland, but they actually don't because they couldn't really afford to give the Northern Ireland, the amount of money that the UK does. So they sort of pretend that they want something that they don't really, and then they all just rumble on and that's how it works. And that's kind of how a Western society has to approach its drug policy because you can't... You know, the, the US has started to decriminalise things more and more and maybe we should do more of that. But there has to be, to a certain extent, some sort of like, here's what we say you can all do and if you go a bit further, then that's fine. But you, don't, you rumbling on is one thing, but then saying, no, actually what we're going to do is we're going to criminalise the mildest, gentlest, most pointless drug there is just because we think there's too many canisters lying about and therefore it's going to win us some votes. I don't think it has to be hypocritical, but I think as long as you follow a policy of harm reduction, you do not have to have a hypocritical drug policy. But but it it requires that that is the focus of your efforts rather than criminality. And I think if if you look at it outside of a criminal justice lens and in a public health lens – very, I, th- I think you can be very consistent in, in the sort of policy making, even though there'll be some restraint. Of course, there definitely will be. I'm not talking about, you know, you go to the newsagent and buy some crack. Although <laughs> it's quite a tempting proposition and it could, it could work if the Conservatives win the next election. I could imagine myself with that newsagent. But... What would a world in which drugs were legalised and you could go to the newsagent and buy your crack look like? 
Yeah. <laughs> well, there's well, there's different ways. So there's different models, and one of the good things about being so far behind on this issue nationally is that there's loads of models to look at from different countries. So one of them, which is obviously you know, because it's America and more popular in America, is just the full on okay, let's just set up shops and it's full commercialization. The other one is typically more popular in Europe, which is okay. So you know you would get it from a pharmacy. It would be sort of completely blank packaging. You would make sure that there's lots of sort of health. I mean, I'm obviously more on the latter side of this because I think you don't want to spook potential you know, potential supporters. You want to tread carefully. And if things are working out with one drug, you could be a bit more relaxed and say, okay, if I, maybe cannabis would be quite like beer and we would sort of, you know, market it, etc. But I don't think we're ever going to have that relationship with heroin, for instance. You know, heroin, even though it would be legal, would still be very heavily controlled. And, you know, it would, it would not be something that we promote with festivals and with advertising campaigns, etc. So, you know, the, the truth is we can look at plenty of experiments in plenty of countries and states within countries and find the model that works for us. Well, I did read today that they're thinking about uh, banning flavoured vapes now as well. So They're I'm... just trying to make me cross. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all an anti-dunt policy. What the fuck? It's like, so the kids are not the only people that like the taste of mango. Where did this idea <laughs> come from? There's like, only children like mango. The fucking madness. <laughs> there was a poll you go did a couple of years ago, which you can never get out of my head, which showed that it was, it was just as lockdown, the final lockdown was ending. Uh, and it found that 19% of people wanted to have a curfew even once the pandemic was <laughs> <laughs> It's like one in five people in this country just object to all forms of fun. Yeah, yeah. it's consistently about 20% of the population basically wanted lockdown to go on forever because it suited them. Jesus. It's just I preferred introverts before the, before the internet when we didn't have to hear from them the whole time. <laughs> Next up, a question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. Chris Within says, great to hear John will be on the show. There you go, John. Does Chris Within exist? (laughs) He exists. (laughs) Might not be his real name, but he exists. As I used to love geeking out on his old City Metric site. So in honour of John, what are the panel's most nerdy slash geeky or downright obscure piece that they are proud to have written? I think we'll start with you here, John, because you are <laughs> the star of the show for this section. <laughs> Absolutely what? all of his back catalogue to choose from. <laughs> I'm actually kind of fascinated with what you think the nerdiest piece that you have ever written is. I mean, you kind of shot my fox on this one by asking about the London Overground at the beginning. <laughs> I, I, thought, I thought you were going to ask me about Scotland. I, was, I had a whole different set of answers. Like, I, I think probably, like, I did once write 2,000 words about the, what the stations on the Elizabeth line should actually be called in a really angry tone of voice that, that, that went, went surprisingly viral, given that description of it. Uh, and I got the best review I've ever had for anything when someone just tweeted it with the words, I found this much more interesting than I'm strictly comfortable with. <laughs> I presume this, these weren't taken up. No, not one. No, no, so, I didn't think they would be. No, yeah. funny that. It's not like France where you can have, you know, crazy metro names. And what was the one that I lived on called? Where you are also... Oh, no, no, so these are the, the news stations. Like, Gideon Park is fine. Uh, Gideon Park's all right. It used to be Gideon Park and Scorers Heath, though, so there you yeah, go. Yeah, OK, stop it. <laughs> In please. the old days, Romford Garden Suburb. Yeah. Please, guys, now. <laughs> even, oh. even Roz has had enough of... Tom, uh, what's the nerdiest, geekiest piece you've ever written? Well, an extremely easy answer. In the... I can't remember if it was the second or the first year of lockdown, um, I became obsessed with restoring my garden lawn like and I scarified <laughs> it I aerated it and I also was it became determined with doing it all myself so I sort of 
looked up all these expensive treatments that expensive companies offered and then tried to work out how to gimcrack them all and do it myself to save money. And I nearly broke my leg in three places trying to lift a 93-kilo hollow tie aerator out the back of my car that took three people to put in. And then when I got back to my house, there weren't three people to get it out again. Um, and I sort of concluded that this would make for a good piece because there's, there's a lot of traffic in lawns, somebody told me, so I wrote it. And... Um, it's the most read piece that I've ever written on any subject ever. Over a million hits. Oh my god! Yeah. Um, and it's still like it's still like yeah, we have a little you know on the software at the independent that says what's doing well and what's not. It's been like lingering on the bottom of there for like years. Like it sort of never goes away. And then and then because it's now like coming into spring, I guarantee you it will come back again because people are about to get into all that nonsense. So it's that by absolutely miles. Well, we'll try and link to all these pieces that we <laughs> mentioned uh, on the uh, Oh God, What Now um, Twitter account if anyone wants to look them up. I was thinking about this and I, and, and I think it has to be a feature that I wrote for Education Guardian back in 2001, um, which was on whether Oxford University was going to stop teaching Old English, uh, <laughs> which at the time, I can't imagine why it seems so important or interesting. But uh, I didn't even study English at Oxford University. So there you go. Um, and uh, and I got some quotes from quite desiccated academics on the subject. Oh, really? They, they, how uh, irritable the academics! That's so unlike. They felt very powerfully. I mean, old English or Middle English—it's a debate, Ian. Oh. I mean, you know, one or the other or neither. I enjoyed writing it though. I can't. I can't think why I did, but I did. Ian, what about you? Was it something to do with Brexit trade? I, really, my whole life. From 2016 to, to 2020 was just a series of geeky articles on technical aspects of mm. the single market, mm. which worked as violent spears in the culture war, but were in fact just very, very technical, <laughs> boring. <laughs> I'm so glad not to be fucking writing them anymore. It's unbelievable. Yes, that's it. And anything written between that period would, would satisfy, I think. Excellent. Or anything I've tried to bring up about comics while on this podcast before you people shut me up. Well, I hope that answers your question. I was going to say, I was waiting for like the, the comic stuff to come out, and surprisingly, you don't even consider it to be the geeky or geekiest material. <laughs> no one actually lets me write about it. <laughs> You're all right in the world of lawns that everyone likes reading about. It's okay. <laughs> Is this a new age of protest? In Israel, people took to the streets to protest against Benjamin Netanyahu's judicial reforms. For now, he's been forced to retreat. Meanwhile, in France, it feels a bit like 1968 all over again. Hundreds of thousands of people are marching, bins are going uncollected, protesters are setting fire to the piles of rubbish. In western France, there are protests against a planned reservoir for irrigation. Tom, the impetus for most of the French protests has been Emmanuel Macron raising the pension age to 64. But is that the real problem or is it the way he's gone about it? Well, it's definitely both. Um, French people, French, the French love a protest. I don't say I don't say that to try and be facile. I mean, they have a... It's, it's, my mum has a small house in France. She's a retired French teacher. And whenever they try and change anything in her village, they're all like queuing up outside the mayor's office to complain. And they have this like... they have They have a culture which is if you try and take anything away from me, we're going to go straight to DEFCON 1. Because the alternative, because if you take this, then you'll just be coming for something else. And frankly, I wish we had that. I wish we could copy them a bit. I mean, the most hilarious thing about these protests, about him raising the state pension age from 62 to 64, 
is we're about to have ours raised to 68, although they may not do it because comically life expectancy has now dropped. So there might not be any money in it anyway, so, so they might be fine, which is how completely ridiculous we are as a country. What's interesting is it concerns the pension age, but it's young people that have gone nuts about it. And clearly it's um, the French way of saying, no, you're not. Young people have been fisted in every imaginable way for years. And this idea that the, 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 the one sacred thing, i.e. the French social security net, is also about to be unpicked. They're saying absolutely no. But at the same time, yes, it's difficult. Ma- Ma- Macron, right, is, is, is what? He's in his seventh year in power and has been largely hated by everyone. And then he governs people who don't like him anyway. And unsurprisingly, he tries to do something unpopular and they go absolutely wild about it. And then, of course, once things kick off, then you have a sub story, which is the way the police have handled it. And I think they're up to, what, 17 incidents now of like noted incidents of potential police violence. So once you go over that brink, if you like, it's very, very hard to come back from it. So it's a cocktail of all those things, which I know is a very wishy-washy, wishy-washy answer. But it's clearly the case. So the protests have been dominated by young people so far. And what's happened to the Gilets jaunes mo- movement that caused so much trouble for Macron before, which kind of had an older profile? Well, the thing about the Gilets jaunes is they, you know, their, their, their Gilets may be back in the car boot, but the spirit of it has not gone away. I mean, that happened, I mean, it was in 2018, right? Mm. Not long after um, this sort of Blair-like, very young, brand new party demigod had swept to power and was widely adored. And then this movement came along and nailed him down to 28%. His popularity has never recovered, really. And as I've just been saying, he now governs on the back of votes of people that don't like him. And that makes it very, very, very hard to govern a country. And that is clearly what's happening here. And that is self-evidently a consequence of the Gilets jaunes protest of 2018. The protest may have taken another form. But, I mean, you don't have to see Les Mis the musical too many times to know that one revolution begets another one, begets another one, begets another one. And it's self-evident that what the Gilets jaunes achieved is clearly part of what's happening now. Ian, in uh, How to Be a Liberal, (laughs) you talk about the French Revolution as uh, one of the beginnings of liberal democracy as we know it today. When people take to the streets, what does it tell us about the state of a democracy or state of a country? I don't think it it doesn't necessarily tell us anything, does it? I mean, it tells you a lot when they don't or they can't. So, I mean, I think obviously when you can't, that tells you an awful lot about the state of democracy in a country. But when they don't as well, I mean, the, the silence in Hungary is one of the most scary things, I think, about Orban's sort of rule in a way that, you know, you're not seeing now in Israel, for instance, when a very similar kind of politics is playing out. I mean, the attacks on the judiciary are actually almost identical in, in a sense. Um, and yet you just didn't see those protests in Hungary. You, you never did, really. Um, and we still haven't. We still haven't seen any, any of that. It's just a sort of liberal soul, or the kind of resistance to it. I think that's the, the, the moment that you don't see that kind of thing. You'd be scared. Now, it's definitely true that our tradition is completely different to the French. And, you know, we, we don't really have anything to point to. The closest you can get is like poll tax or something, you know, of, of real sort of change on the basis of protests. But London is very heavily protested real estate. You know what I mean? Like, there is a lot of protest by a lot of different groups pretty much every day, and you'll see it for anything. I mean, at the moment that that started going away, either because of the legislation the government has passed or because people have just given up on the idea of engagement would be the point that you would really get terribly worried. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because, I mean, the, the policing bill does make protest much more risky. 
going going into and joining a protest is really hard to the extent that you know it is it is difficult to organize a protest that you can be sure is within the law if you're a large organization i mean yeah. is it is it even possible now for spontaneous protests to break out in britain or have we been cowed by what is a you know threat of imprisonment See, the thing is, is it's even dangerous. It's actually very hard to attend a protest while, while knowing that you're not breaking the law. Because once the messages come from the police about the conditions of the protest, if you then break those conditions, you're committing a criminal offence. But that applies even if you didn't, even if you hadn't heard them on the loudspeaker or on social media. It could have come out on a social media account. You just never saw it. And then you're done for it. But the thing is, because there's quite little awareness of that, I don't think mm. that people have sort of internalized it in their own behavior i think they would still go out and they would be shocked if you were to tell them any of this to be like well of course i get to go out and protest because this is britain so in a way i think the ignorance probably plays to the advantage of of protest because people just will not believe that that is the kind of rule that would operate in this country even though in actual technical reality it does Mm. it's it's lucky we can definitely trust the metropolitan police not to abuse these powers yes thank god (laughs) thank god they're so reliable Yeah, well, John, we haven't thus far seen a great deal of protest in the UK apart from marches on strike days and that kind of thing. And I've been wondering whether that actually comes from a feeling of impotence almost, that nothing seems to touch this government except parts of the media. I was thinking about this because, I mean, the, the interesting thing about France is, you know, obviously this happens repeatedly in French history. You know, they've got there's three definite revolutions in like 18, 1789, 1830, 1848. But then there's lots of half revolutions where they massively change stuff. And that happens about every 20, 30 years. And I was trying to think of like equivalents from, from British or English history. And they're actually really hard to pin down. All our kind of revolutionary moments are kind of these elite actions, like Magna Carta coming from the barons or, or the Glorious Revolution was literally a Dutch invasion that we just decided to pretend was <laughs> entirely. Or our civil war was between two bits of, of the elite. We don't really have these kind of bottom-up movements in our history in the same way. And when you the ones that kind of obviously come to mind generally are these sort of massive noble failures, like the miners' strike or the, or the general strike in 1926. It's really only the poll tax where I can I could actually think of something where you you can point to like a protest that changed things. Like we all remember the, the the massive anti-Iraq war march of a million people on the streets or whatever it was. But the, one of the things that was so notable about that is it didn't change a bloody thing. Like it was a complete failure in terms of changing policy. But I think one of the reasons that, that we don't, it's not just history. It's, it is just the, the sense of impotence that comes from the fact that we, we don't have these examples to point to of people power actually changing anything. Mm-hmm. We just kind of accept that things get worse and worse and worse. But we do remember police police public clashes quite strongly. I mean, you know, if you think about the Battle of Orgrave in, in, in uh, the north during the miners' strike, for example, and we remember those kinds of, of clashes between the police and the public and it is so often something the police have done that sets off this spark, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, a, a, a drum I've been banging quite a lot the last couple of years is I, I think we have a massive structural problem with the Metropolitan Police in that they are not only London's local police force, but the kind of national security apparatus. Mm. And, and and so you kind of ended up with the, the, these people who are, some of them are just thugs, basically. They're people who kind of want a Barney. 
They want, they want to get out there and fight. And those are the guys we put in charge of keeping public order protests. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it just feels to me like if we could separate those two things, I mean, maybe, maybe this is nonsense because maybe it would still be the national security bit that was, that was dealing with these protests. But I kind of think if it was the hand, in the hands of a local police force rather than something that answers directly to the home office, it would be a different, a, a, a different sort of job, which would attract a different sort of person, I think. I remember I went, I had to cover the, um, the, the like the second referendum protest in 2017, which was basically an anti-Brexit protest, and I think I think the f- a fair assessment is there were maybe 700,000 people there, and no, and I think people like to say that with the Iraq War protest in 2003 there were a million, not necessarily correct numbers, but they were large numbers, and I remember doing this on the second on the second referendum protest, someone saying to me, I interviewed, well look, I don't think this is going to change anything. I went on the Iraq War protest, and I don't think it's going to change anything. But look how many people there are here, and look how many people there were in 2003. And actually, I think if enough people are out there doing it, it sort of puts on the public record, like, this is clearly going to be shown to be, have been in the wrong. Like, the, 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 arguably, the point of doing that process in 2003 is you can look back and say, well, it didn't change anything, but it should, but you can't, you can, you can therefore, it's impossible for a politician to go back and change and, say, and, and try and change the record and say, well, there was opinion polls that say we were in favour of the war. You can always point to the fact that a million people said no. Like a million people basically thought it was bullshit, this idea that there were WMD in Iraq. And there are a million people or so on the streets in 2017 to say this is bullshit. And it's worth, if you just if you get to a high enough number, you do put something in the historical record mm. to say we are going to be found, we are going to be vindicated and we are just putting on record today that we will be vindicated. Yeah, it functions as an escape valve almost, mm. doesn't it? And this is one of the reasons why I think, you know, one of the, why, the, why the protest crackdown is so dangerous in a way because mm. it does function uh, as a way of expressing yourself in a way that it was impossible to do at the ballot box for Brexit, for example. Ian, there's a lot of fascinating debate um, well, at least in academic circles, about when a protest becomes a riot and that moment when it tips over, mm-hmm. you know, about the mob and all that kind of thing. Have you ever witnessed that happening yourself? I have. I have. I've seen that as a participant and as an observer in a sort of professional thing. And I totally get why that is a fascinating thing mm. and why that word mob becomes like a really challenging word because it, the, I think that to me, the definition of it is the point where people who have currently been behaving as individuals, say when we're on the anti-Brexit march, we're all individuals marching together, flips into you can feel a group consciousness, especially in movement. Like you suddenly become kind of like flocks of birds. Like if, if someone hears something or there's a big or there's a rumor of a police kettle over here or something mm-hmm. and there's a sudden movement, you just sort of start going with it and you sort of feel that there. The, the fascists were were obsessed with this sort of analysis, by the way. Mussolini was was very, very into it, Sorrell and stuff, of this idea of watching crowds and how that takes place. And it's quite sketchy and it's quite frightening and you very much become part of it. And I think it's very, very hard to prevent yourself from having what I presume is a... I get, this is some pop psychology right now, but I presume it's a sort of evolutionary mechanism of if you see a bunch of sort of fellow species members running in a, you better fucking follow them because there's probably a T-Rex or some shit you know coming down the thing I presume that's what it is but I think you definitely feel that and that to me was always the distinction between those those two words We talked earlier about antisocial behaviour I mean this is a government with a deep reverence I say respect but it's really reverence for property and it's intolerant of protest and it feels like it's increasingly scared of young people 
what what kind of cocktail does that create for the future? This is a question for anyone, really. I mean, it's just incredibly bleak, isn't it? The, like, I mean, I think the the, the I, 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 in some ways, I'm, I'm less concerned about this stuff like you know nitrous oxide and so on. It feels like a, le- a, 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 a less important part of this mix than just the economic settlement being handed on to the next generation. Yes. Yeah. Where like you know consistently like just this week we've seen we're talk- we're hearing about stronger rights for landlords to evict tenants mm. and not stronger rights for tenants to not be made homeless. Mm. Um, but but you know it's every time there's a tax change that comes up, it all, it always seems to privilege the people who have stuff and it's always loaded onto the next generation and and I, you know i think for a long time this was done in a kind of well the economy grows in the future there'll be more money to pay for it yeah kind of way and no one really believes that anymore <laughs> that 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 kind of like there's a post-industrial economic growth that we have the 200 years seems to have just stopped for some reason but we're still loading more and more of the kind of cost of the future onto the young and it's happening for purely electoral expediency reasons it's because those are not the people who vote tory I mean, what's the crossover these days? It's about 64 or something, isn't it, where you become more likely to vote Tory than Labour, which is insane. It's getting towards the end of the show. So what are the stories that have fallen under the radar this week? This is not a story, sorry. And I'm aware that I don't think I've ever answered this question without saying that. But nevertheless, it isn't. Um, I I used that, the new Google thing, what's it called, Bard, the AI thing, the other day, Mm. uh, and asked a series of questions. And it made me feel really weirdly lonely and mortified by the world. And I don't really understand AI, and most of the people I do follow who do understand it are usually quite, we shouldn't get too panicked about this, and there's loads of good things, and blah, 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 and I take all of that on board. However, it sketched me out, and it made me feel terribly alone, because it was it was... It was not long after I'd had a conversation with the little Google window for trying to fix one of my Google products. And throughout that conversation, I was like, I can't tell if this is a person mm. or a robot because, you know, people are sort of forced into answering with these very rigid corporate responses. And then I spoke to someone that was AI and I thought, this feels quite a lot like a human. And I suddenly felt like I was in a world that I had sort of lost touch with. And I, I couldn't tell whether there were people out there or whether I was just having interactions with servers yeah and it made me feel fucking weird and and genuinely scared for the future in in a middle-aged man kind of way in a i feel like the world is going to a place that makes me very uncomfortable yeah so my existential crisis continued existential crisis is my underrated news you do have to be week. careful with that i once got so frustrated this is about 10 years ago I got so frustrated with the o2 chatbot that I, well, I was trying to get my phone sorted out that I asked the O2 chatbot what the O2 chatbot was wearing. And the O2 chatbot replied, I'm just wearing jeans and a T-shirt. And then explained that the O2 chatbot was actually <laughs> this woman in, a, in Bangalore. And I was like, oh, God, I'm going to get arrested here. <laughs> <laughs> so you do, you do have to take care. I can't believe you answered that question. Really okay. <laughs> I did enjoy the New York Times piece where the, the, one of these AI bots started encouraging the writer to leave his wife. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. yeah. And it's like, what? What are you saying to like this is coming from you in some way? What are you saying to it that is that is letting this piece of technology know that you're really unhappy in your marriage? Uh, yeah, yeah. Mine, oddly enough, is also about AI. Um, there was a very sad story out of Belgium this week, and uh, a man committed suicide after having very extensive conversations with a chatbot called Eliza, and he basically become very depressed about environmental problems and you know despairing about the state of the world and he'd started talking to Eliza about 
how he felt and the things that she, I use the word, you know, she advisedly was saying to him. Now, because we can never, I suppose, prove that this was directly what led to his suicide, but certainly his family were convinced that she had encouraged him to kill himself. And I think that speaks to, yeah, how, how worried we should be about how people, what people will do when AI is so convincing that it, we, we start to effectively anthropomorphize it. Mm-hmm. And we start to believe that this, this thing, this, this uh, uh, service, ChatGPT or whatever, has the same, has perhaps better and more profound insights than other people do. And that is, that is a scary thought. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, then maybe it isn't. <laughs> Tom, how about you? What's been on um, your radar? Well, under the radar is potentially the wrong term, but I have spent all week in court with Prince Harry and Elton John. Oh, lucky um, you. So it's not. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily gone under the radar. But what has gone under the radar, clearly to me, is um, what that pre-trial hearing is about, and it's much saltier and much more concerning concerning might be the wrong word but there's a lot more to it than I realised and actually when you look at the details Prince Harry is going to spend all of 2023 absolutely gunning for the press there are four big trials coming he is in a place where he doesn't care who's go who goes down with him he's not doing any deals the rest of his family can go fuck themselves as far as he's concerned you can see in his eyes that he's like sort of considers himself like avenging his mother's death, basically, which he blames on the press with a fair amount of justification. Mm. And I don't think many people have necessarily realised that 2023 really could be a lot like 2011, like a lot like with phone hacking and Leveson. Like there's a lot to come out and there's a lot coming on that front. Are these all, I'm, I'm so ignorant. Are these all libel cases or, or are some of them... This isn't libel. This, this particular one is um, Sussex and others, which are seven people. They are... Prince Harry, Elton John, David Furnish, Sadie Frost, Liz Hurley, Baroness Doreen, Doreen Lawrence, and um, the Lib- former Lib Dem mayoral candidate and MP Simon Hughes. And they are suing the Associated Newspapers, publisher of the Daily Mail, the Mail on Sunday and the Mail Online, for all sorts of things. Illegal gathering information, most of it concerns payments to private investigators. Some of it probably involves phone hacking. It's not totally clear how the seven claimants sort of match up with the various charges that they are that they're allegations that they're bringing but this is only a pre-trial hearing the, the trial proper is probably in two months there's another one which is um against the mirror which is probably going to start like the day after the coronation and that's going to be quite spicy hmm. um there's loads there and like my noble industry may be like facing down and some really big difficulties john how about you uh, again, I don't know if under ra- the radar is quite the quite the word, but um, the the comedian and TV presenter Paul O'Grady at uh, Prime Minister's Questions uh, today, the Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raab, uh, firstly accidentally named him as Paul Grayson, and I'm not sure whether he was getting mixed up with Larry Grayson or Grayson Perry, but mm. either way, not great. Mm. Um, but I think that getting his name wrong was actually. Uh, less offensive than the fact he went on to sort of ventriloquize this 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 re- this recently dead comedian by saying that he didn't have a woke bone in his body or words to that effect. You know, saying he would never have he wouldn't hold all that woke stuff. And it's like the guy's literally just died, yeah. and he held quite noisy 
left-wing views. He really was not a fan of the Conservative Party, and you don't have to look hard to find clips to this effect. And yet you've got the Deputy PM feeling quite comfortable with standing up, getting his name wrong, uh, and then putting words in his mouth. And I just think it's you know just the latest example of why Dominic Raab is an absolutely disgusting man who massively deserves to lose his seat. And he's a bully as well, so there we go. <laughs> well, Not that you want to prejudge the official inquiry in any way. It can't be long, surely, until that official inquiry reports back. Um, it seems to have been many months. Well, four, and then I think Pretty Patel took ten, and then they ignored it. So, who knows? <laughs> well, you know, which would be it'd be nice to see him being kicked out of his seat as well, wouldn't it? Which he Very might nice. well be. Like, we, we can have both. both. Yeah, we can have both. Yeah, yeah, both would be. I, I, I find Rob particularly irritating because he just reminds me so badly of certain kids I went to school with, who are these sort of massive nerds with an interest in right wing politics, who went off to university and came back after the summer just massively ripped and rebranded themselves as rowers or something. It's like his entire <laughs> career has been about overcompensating for the fact that people were mean to him because he was really interested in military history when he was fourteen, and it just baffles me that everyone else can't see this. But this is my. My own personal personal issue with a man I know. <laughs> Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our patient army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Just search Oh God What Now Patreon to find out how to sign up. It's a big thank you from me to David Little, Oh Good Gods and Phil Norton. Hello from me, and many thanks to Claire Spencer, Verity Corbett, and Claire Stones. And finally, from me, all our thanks and appreciation to Yaniv Schwerin, Philip Beichler, and signing up for the fourth time, Sally Kemble Smith. Oh God, What Now was presented by Ross Taylor with Ian Dunt and Tom Peck. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Kasia Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to this week's Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, I fucking hate Europeans. Don't worry, (laughs) not me. I wouldn't say that. But the words of a New York waitress who was annoyed at European tourists for tipping poorly. In the US, adding a gratuity is expected for everyone from waiters to hotel porters, but here and elsewhere in Europe, we often expect that the price on your bill is just that. John, do you tip freely and willingly? Uh, I, I, I do, because I'm, I'm the sort of person who just really worries what other people are going to think of me. <laughs> um, so it's not out of any sort of inherent generosity. It's purely about like not wanting to be thought bad. Uh, I did really, I did really enjoy this story though, because like it's the one, it's the best thing that can happen for the cause of European unity is someone on US Twitter getting really angry. <laughs> <laughs> like, like one of the happiest days I've, I've had on Twitter in the last couple of years was when someone in, in New Jersey complained about a certain word, a British slang term for a cigarette being homophobic. And it really brought <laughs> British Twitter together in a way I've never seen. Like left and right, leave and remain. All we need is someone like Matt Iglesias to kind of like have a go. And that's the thing that could finally unite this nation. <laughs> But do you see it as a reward for good service or is it just an obligation for you? I mean, it is. 
It's you. You would have noticed I was just ducking all the sort of difficult questions. There. Um, I, <laughs> no, I, I didn't want to mention it. I mean, the 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 the, the, the it, it clearly has become an obligation, and that is, you know, there is an extent to which that's problematic because you know people should be paid a living wage to do their job. It should, if you're working full time, you should be able to like have nice things. If that's only happening if people are uh, tipping, then that feels to me like there's a there's a structural problem there. Also, if it's if it's meant to be something, I mean, it's that bit in Pulp Fiction, isn't it? The guy complaining, saying like, mm-hmm. he only, you know, he will still tip for exceptional service, but he resents the fact it's kind of become compulsory. And um, there is, there is dogs. kind of t- the Reservoir Dogs. Sorry, here, yeah, mixing it's shameful <laughs> nerd errors that you're making. The wrong kind of nerdery. Sorry, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it, 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 the the fact it has become this sort of obligation in. Is, 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 is difficult. That suggests that something's gone, you know, employers should be paying people better. That was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now, every week, without ads and a day early, then do yourself a favour and sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, oh God, what else, every Monday morning. Thanks for listening. See you next week. I am experiencing vague satisfaction.